My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to be able to share with you today about the road that Jesus is on. And we've been thinking a lot about road signs while we're talking about this. And we road signs and maps. We need these to help us kind of figure out our pathway, right? Especially if we're going someplace we've never been before. Then we look to the signs to kind of give us direction, or maybe we pull out a map or a GPS or something to kind of give us direction. Have you ever been overwhelmed by the signs that are on the side of the road? Like there's just so many of them you can't quite uh, interpret all of them. I got a picture here of signs from, I think this is Antwerp, Belgium. You got, you got that slide for me? The pictures, uh, this road signs. This is in one intersection. In, <laughs> apparently in this particular intersection, there's no left turns, no jaywalking, no fishing, no picnics, no surgery if I'm interpreting the signs properly. There's a bunch of other things that you can't do. It's kind of interesting because when I think about how people look at Christianity, they often interpret Christianity as a bunch of road signs about thou shall not. It's all the things you shouldn't do. I wish they could hear more like the message we just heard in the choir song, a God who loves his people and who wants to bring healing, a God of feasting, a God of uh, love and compassion who's overflowing. That's the kind of signs we probably need to put out a little bit more. I got another question for you about road signs. Which road signs do you know which, when violated, are the ones most likely to get you a ticket? Do you know which signs when you violate, road sign when you violate, the most likely to get you a ticket? It's not speeding. This, that surprised me. I expected it to be speeding. Number one, no U-turns. That's the sign that's most likely. This is according to the DMV.org, whatever that is. Um, stop signs were second. Smallest signs we see on the side of the road, those little mile markers. You see them every mile. And sometimes they got them every tenth of a mile to kind of, you, you can mark your progress. This is how far I've come. This is how far I need to go. You can figure out where you're at. So I wanted to remind us of a few road signs that we've got seen along the way, maybe mile markers that we've seen. Starting in, the, uh, in Galilee, remember, we were up in the uh, northern part of the Holy Land in Galilee. And uh, here's some familiar cities from Capernaum to Jerusalem. Anyone want to guess how far? How many miles from Capernaum to Jerusalem? About 85 miles. From the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem? About 70 miles. From Nazareth to Jerusalem? About 65 miles. Samaria is about 36 miles from Jerusalem, depending on where you start. Now let's move to Judea. I got a map of this in the south. We've been moving our ways down... Uh, on this map, getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. And so here you see the map of the Judea. Last week we talked about Jericho. How far is Jericho from Jerusalem? 15 miles. And then uh, we're going to be coming to Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem. This same map is on the back of your little handout if it helps you to see it there. So Bethany is only about a 40-minute walk to Jerusalem. And the gospel writers all do the same thing as they give us the story of Jesus, as they take us on these different roads. They start a long way from Jerusalem, and they come closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. And as they get closer to Jerusalem, the detail in the story expands. The story gets, we get more and more information. And also, they describe more and more kind of this intense conflict that is developing between Jesus and the religious leaders. So the story really kind of amps up as we get closer and closer to Jerusalem, as we get closer to the Passover, closer to Good Friday, closer to the cross, closer to the tomb. These are all things that cause the writers to slow down and give us a little more information. So today's scripture passage about being on the road with Jesus is going to pick up right after the, the healing of Bartimaeus, which we looked at last week. Remember, blind Bartimaeus was on the road outside of Jericho, 
And um, if you remember, one thing Jer touched on briefly last week was the fact that there was two Jerichos. There was an old Jericho and a new Jericho. The traditional site for Jericho uh, was uh, where the people lived, and about two miles from there, King Herod built a winter palace, and he called that the new Jericho. They just called that Jericho. And the road between the old Jericho and the new Jericho, about two miles, was lined with people who were in need, people who were blind, who were lame, who were sick, people who were hoping to capture these travelers as they were moving from one Jericho to another and get some alms or get some support. That's the story where we're at today. And we're going to be looking at this in Luke chapter 19. So I'd like you to take your Bibles out if you have a Bible with you or else take one from the chair or open up your phone or iPad or something. Luke chapter 19, we're going to read about what happens now is uh, still around Jericho. Luke chapter 19, I'm going to start reading with verse 1. Listen to what happened along the road to Jericho. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see Jesus, to see who he was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbing a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. Even as a kid, I loved the ingenuity of Zacchaeus. He had a problem, he wasn't able to see, and he fixed that problem. And we used to sing a song about this. Some of you maybe know the song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. When we sang this song, we made a really big deal out of Zacchaeus being wee, a wee little man. And I imagined him climbing up in a tree to get a better view of things. But as a kid, I don't think I ever stopped to imagine what did Zacchaeus see from this new perspective that he gained. You know, being up in the tree there was a pretty good spot to get a good eye on everybody. What do you think he saw when he was up there in the tree? So as I imagined that this week, I imagined that he was up there kind of in advance and Jesus is out in the distance and he's seeing this crowd gather around Jesus as kind of an entourage slowly moving down the road. And one of the things that first he would notice for sure would be this massive crowd that has gathered around Jesus. Uh, Disciples, followers. 
These are people who've probably heard Jesus teach. They've been inspired by his vision of the kingdom. There may be people that Jesus has touched and healed. They are following Jesus and they're hanging on every word. And he probably noticed that pressing in really close to Jesus are those who seem to be the most needy. These are people who are blind, people who are sick, people who are lame, the widows, the orphans. These people who are outcasts in the community, they're coming very near to Jesus. They're pressing up against him. They're wanting something from Jesus. They're hoping, maybe Jesus will touch me. Maybe Jesus will hear me. Some of them are crying out, have mercy on me, as Bartimaeus cried out. Have mercy on me. Zacchaeus, from his vantage point, can see all of this unfolding. He certainly notices that in the crowd, there's a little clump of his tax-collecting buddies. They're kind of sticking close together, and they're obviously looking a little bit nervous because they don't like to get out in the crowd. Because when these guys go out in public, they're scorned and they're sneered. These guys are cheats. Uh, This is an interesting description in our passage of Luke because it described him as a tax collector and wealthy. That's not the way they normally are described. They're usually described this way. Tax collector and sinner. That's the way they're described. And so these guys are in the midst of this crowd hanging close together, but they're also coming near to Jesus to try to hear what Jesus has to say. He also would notice in this crowd, there's sprinkled throughout them Roman soldiers. They're there to keep the peace. They're there to watch this crowd. You know, this crowd is sometimes unruly and they're prone to rebel. And so the Roman soldiers are watching closely to make sure that this does not get out of hand. But he notices that they're also listening to Jesus. On the edges of this crowd, Zacchaeus can see another group of people. They're kind of holding back, they're really on the fringes. These are the religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees. They are following Jesus, and Zacchaeus doesn't know this, but they're following him with a completely different reason. They're trying to hear if Jesus is going to say something wrong. They want to trick Jesus. They want to trap Jesus. They're actually hoping that Jesus will commit some kind of blasphemy, that he'll say something that's unpardonable, and they can have him arrested, and they can have him condemned, and they can have him killed. These religious leaders on the edge of the crowd, they are plotting to take care of Jesus. Zacchaeus watches this whole entourage move closer and closer, and he notices one thing that seems amazing to him. Jesus is a very different kind of man because he is not annoyed by this crowd. He's not bothered by them as they press on him. Instead, what he sees is this. Jesus seems to love them. He loves all of them. He loves the disciples. He loves those who are needy. He loves those Roman soldiers. He even loves those tax collectors and those scribes and Pharisees that are plotting on the edges. Jesus seems to love them all. And Zacchaeus, as he's hanging from that limb in the tree, I think he can maybe start to imagine, if Jesus could love them, maybe Jesus could love me too. And the crowd slowly moves until it comes right below his perch in the tree. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said... Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. And Zacchaeus comes down, and there's an amazing transformation that comes to Zacchaeus when he meets Jesus on the road. He immediately considers his situation, and he recognizes he is a wealthy man, and he gives half of all that he has to take care of these poor people that he has seen shuffling down the road with Jesus. And he knows that he is a cheat. He knows that he has cheated many people. And he says, I will repay those people 
four times what I cheated. There's a transformation that comes when Zacchaeus meets Jesus on the road and then these amazing words out of Jesus' mouth, he says, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. This is words that Zacchaeus might have longed to hear because he's grown up thinking he doesn't deserve to be loved. He's not worthy of love. He doesn't deserve to be forgiven. He's an outcast. He's an outsider. He does not belong. And now Jesus has just said, you belong. I love you. And the reason Jesus can say that is because this is the reason Jesus came. He says, I came to seek and to save the lost. You see, this is not a God who's come to judge and to cast out. He's a God who's come to welcome and to receive. He's a God of compassion and love and mercy. And so he offers salvation to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus gladly receives it and becomes a follower of Jesus. And you know what? This is just the thing that makes the religious leaders so angry. They cannot stand the thought that Jesus would offer forgiveness to this man, a tax collector, a sinner. Now, this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees is not new. It's been boiling for a long time. But as we get closer and closer to Jerusalem, we see that this is about to boil over. Listen to kind of the kind of interaction that Jesus had with these religious leaders. This is from Matthew 16. I don't know that these words happened on the same day, but it's certainly typical of the kind of interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, as they were infuriated by Jesus constantly. Matthew 16 starts this way. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and they tested him. That was a pretty typical move for them. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And Jesus replied, When evening comes, you will say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And then Jesus left them and went away. The battle between Jesus and these religious leaders is boiling. They've watched everything that Jesus has done and they are infuriated that he heals the sick, that he preaches good news about God's love, that he reaches out and feeds the hungry. These are all signs, you know, of God's coming kingdom. And yet they have the audacity to like ask for a sign. These religious leaders have no love lost for Jesus. They've been butting heads from the beginning. First they tried to ignore him. Then they tried trick questions to trap him. Then they made accusations against him and his disciple. Finally they come right down to making threats against him. And Jesus goes right on proclaiming God's love. He goes right on with his mission, reaching out to sinners, performing miraculous signs. These religious leaders see some of the things that Jesus has done and they actually interpret these signs as like from the devil. Well, he must be getting his power from the devil. They refuse to acknowledge that Jesus has power from God. And Jesus is finally fed up with it. And he has some very blunt words with these kind of self-righteous, power-hungry, hypocritical men. 
wicked men, he calls them. Whitewashed tombs, he calls them in other places. He's, he's fed up. So now he points to a different road. And he does this by just mentioning one character, and the character's name is Jonah. As soon as he mentions Jonah, these guys' minds would have gone reeling. So let's take a kind of an upper-level perspective on this one, too. I actually have a map of this for you, so you can get a perspective of what these guys are thinking about when he brings up Jonah. Okay? Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh. Now, you probably can't see this because it's so small. Way over here on the right is Nineveh. When Jonah gets the call to go to Nineveh, his first thought is, those people don't deserve to hear about God's love. Those people are so wicked... They're so evil. They're the, mo- they're the evil of the evil. I'm not going there. So he gets on a boat and he goes as far to the other direction as you can go. He goes to Tarshish. He runs away from God. God causes there to be a big storm. They determine that Jonah's the cause of the storm. He gets thrown overboard. He gets swallowed by a big fish. Three days, he's in the belly of the fish. And then the fish spits him up on shore and Jonah has to go to Nineveh after all. It's a miraculous thing that happens in Nineveh because Jonah just barely begins to preach the gospel. He barely gets started telling them about God's judgment that's coming against their sin. And the, the people repent from the top down. The king says to the people, don't eat anything, put on sackcloth and ashes, repent, and maybe yet this God will relent from the calamity that he's going to send to us. And the people repent. Let me read you this story because it's such an amazing thing that happens. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God forgives them. Every last one of them. And Jonah is mad. He is very mad. Listen to why he's so ticked off. This is from Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed like it was wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. That's an angry prophet. And what's he angry about? He says, oh, I knew you were this kind of God. I knew that if I would go there and tell these people about you, I knew you would forgive them. Isn't that just the kind of God we serve? This is what God does. He forgives. He is a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And this is the sign that Jesus gives to the religious leaders who are dogging him. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, Jesus says, but none will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something far greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, 
You've had more than enough signs of God's coming kingdom. You've had more than enough signs of God's grace, grace and God's compassion and God's love and God's mercy. And you hard-hearted religious leaders are worse than the Ninevites because you did not repent. I want us to gain some perspective on the road as we're seeing what's happening when these people meet Jesus. We're getting closer and closer now to Jerusalem. From Jericho to Bethany is about 13 miles. From Bethany to Jerusalem, about two miles, about a 40-minute walk. Jesus leaves Jericho and goes to Bethany. From Bethany, there's only one place left to go, and that's Jerusalem. And if he goes to Jerusalem, he's choosing to go to the cross. There's no other place he can go once he arrives in Jerusalem but the cross. But we already heard today, and we've already seen from week to week, every single road Jesus is on leads to the cross. Why? Because God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and filled with love. Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Us. This is what we discover when we meet Jesus on the road. When we stand above it all and look at this perspective, we recognize Jesus is going to the cross and nothing will stop him from going there because he loves us that much. I'd like you to take a few minutes. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a moment, but first we're going to spend a little time in our practice of contemplation. We're going to ask the question, where's Jesus on my road? And what does Jesus have to say to me? And this morning I'd like you to think about it in a particular way. You can think about it maybe as a preparation for communion. What does Jesus have to say to you right now? As we sit here as people who were lost, people who are sinful people, what does Jesus have to say to us about our sin? So we're going to give you a couple minutes. Reflect on where you see Jesus on your road and what does Jesus have to say to you now?